You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah 2, and once you uh, begin turning, you can go ahead and stand. We will uh, stand in respect and honor of the reading of the scripture tonight. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Nehemiah. I don't know where I got Luke. I haven't had preached in Luke at all uh, since I've been here. Nehemiah chapter 2. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 11. We'll read the same passage we read last week, but focusing on different verses here uh, in uh, our series, Arise and Build. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11 It says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. So last week we were talking about Nehemiah's deliberate approach to the rebuilding of the walls, and uh, he didn't go publish everything right away, he He spent three days to survey the land. He spent three days to take it all in. He didn't even tell other people what his plan was. He he simply uh, wanted to go look for himself. He didn't broadcast it or publish it. Uh, He wanted to be deliberate about the plan. It says in verse 13, And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well into the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, for there, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Things were in such disarray, the walls were so broken down, the gates were so burned, there was nowhere for him to even take his horse. Verse 15. Then I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that that did the work. Then said I, and this is really what we're focusing on tonight, is this speech right here. Then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem." that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. And said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. This is a great, uh, a great look into how to inspire people to get involved in God's work. And tonight, I think there are some elements here that would be a help to us, but in the end, there's one element especially that if it's missing, the work cannot be done. And the question that I'm posing tonight is, will there be laborers? 
will there be laborers? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. I pray that you would help me to convey it. Lord, it's already here in your word. I pray that you would help me to be a vessel that simply conveys it tonight. I pray that it would be clear that you would motivate and inspire your people to rise up and build. Have your will and way in our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As a kid, I loved to watch The Lone Ranger. Anybody else watch The Lone Ranger as a kid? Okay, many, many hands going up here. Now, I think, honestly, I think that's my first memory of watching a television program. Uh, the first memory I have of seeing anything on a television was The Lone Ranger. I don't, and I don't even know if it's on anymore. I'm sure you could find it somewhere. But as a boy, I, I admired his bravery and his willingness to fight against a band of outlaws, even if the odds, odds were stacked against him. And uh, I think any boy who was a fan of the Lone Ranger at some point probably fashioned a black mask with two crooked eye holes cut out of it and wore it around the house. Uh, I know I did. But one thing that, stu- that struck me later on that I'd never really thought about before is that he's called the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger. But he wasn't actually usually alone when he fought the bad guys. Um, Do you remember who was with him? Tonto, the poorly named sidekick, okay? Tonto. um, He called the Lone Ranger Kimosabi, and those two, side by side, would fight the bad guys. But if you stop and think about it, he really wasn't a Lone Ranger. He had a sidekick. He was with somebody else. And my point in using that story is... Even the Lone Ranger didn't do it by himself. But see, we, a lot of times in our lives, in our mindsets, we admire those that do something on their own and they stand up on their own and they get something done on their own with no help. They just go do it. But most great achievements involve multiple people. And years ago, I read a book by John Maxwell. He called it Uh, the 17 irrefutable or indisputable, I think, laws of leadership. And one observation that he makes is this. One is too small a number to achieve greatness. One is too small a number to achieve greatness. You cannot do anything of real value alone. And he asserts that behind every act of significant or meaningful accomplishment, there is a group of people. And if you stop and think about it, It really is true. And it's not just true as a business model, and it's not just true um, in history. It's also often true in God's work. See, rarely does God just use one without any other help. And I know we can automatically think of exceptions in that Jesus Christ was one, but I would think he's the exception to just about everything. He's the only one that could have been in that position and done what he did, that he's the only one. But if you think about it, most of the time, then God's work is done by a group of people. Rarely does God just use one. The best example that I think of is the apostles. You know, that group of apostles that Jesus Christ called out and started the church with, and God used those to spread the gospel and plant New Testament churches in their part of the country, and it fanned out through the rest of the world, and we are still today benefactors of their labor. Now, I'm thankful that that they set that example 
And then also now the New Testament church carries on from that example. The New Testament church is a great example of the fact that God's work still continues in a group effort. I mean, God doesn't expect one person, one person can't be a church. One person can't go out and do all the things, function as a body that like the church is supposed to, and do what all the work is supposed to be done. One person can't get it all done. It takes a group of people. It takes laborers. It takes a group of people that are committed to the work to get together and work toward the same goal. God's work through the church is meant to be accomplished in a group. It's not meant to be done by Lone Ranger Christians. And I think there probably are plenty of us at times that feel like we want to be Lone Rangers or we want to do it by ourselves, or we don't feel like getting involved or getting, being a part. I understand sometimes you feel that way, but that's not the way that God's work is accomplished. And one man who understood the necessity of the involvement of other people in God's work is Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah has come back to Jerusalem and he's preparing to rebuild these walls. And I can't, honestly, I can't help but notice again how deliberate he is in everything that he does. And he operates by that principle we looked at last week that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And if it's worth doing for God, it's worth doing deliberately. He went out and he knew if this is God's work, this is important. I want to do this well. I'm going to do this deliberately. I'm not just going to fly by the seat of my pants. I'm going to go out. I'm going to be deliberate in my timing. I'm going to be deliberate, deliberate in my discretion. I'm not just going to publish the plan. I'm going to be careful about that. I'm going to be deliberate in the details. And it's not until he's deliberate in the planning that he's ready to take his plan to the next step, that he's ready to reveal the plan to the public. And that's where we come to, in verse 16, he says, And the rulers knew not whither I went. So he comes to them, or the rulers at this point still don't know, actually. The rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. He said, Neither as I had yet told, told it to the Jews, I hadn't told the priests, I had not told the nobles, I hadn't told the rulers, I hadn't even told the ones that would be doing the work. And to us that sounds, I don't understand that, Maybe Nehemiah really was a lone ranger. Maybe he is trying to do this all on his own because he hasn't told anybody. No, he just wants to make sure he gets it right. His intention is to get everybody involved. And when you have a plan that involves multiple people, you better be ready for it because people will see right through the, right through the plan if it's not solidly built. He said, even at this point, I hadn't told the people that were going to be doing the work, but then he decides the plan is ready. And it's time to get started. One thing that I think is fascinating about um, our, our, the study of Nehemiah is, is to watch him switch so seamlessly between all of his roles. I mean, first, uh, in, in the king's palace, he's just a cupbearer. That's all he is. But, but he was also, at the same time, a prayer warrior. And he turned from a prayer warrior into a negotiator with the king. And he turned from a negotiator into an ambassador representing the king across these countries. In verse 11, he became a surveyor. And now we see him about to put on this last hat in that he's a builder. But before the building can begin, Nehemiah has to be a motivator. Nehemiah has to pitch something to these nobles and princes 
and rulers and the ones that would be doing the work, he has to come with a process and a plan, and he has to pitch it to the ones that would be carrying out the work. And that's where we get into the thought process tonight, is that Nehemiah walks around the wall, he looks at the wall, and he sees the job, and he says, this is too big for one person. I mean, one is too small a number to achieve something this big, this great. He's walking around the wall and he's thinking, I, I, I could maybe do that part right there, but you go a few more feet and here's another part of the wall that's just completely decimated. He's walking around the wall thinking, there's no way I can do this by myself. I must enlist help. You see, it takes somebody with a certain amount of humility to realize that even if you want to be a lone ranger, you cannot do it by yourself. I mean, Nehemiah, he's talented, he's driven, he's spiritual, he's wise, he's discerning, and he's deliberate, but he's also only one person. There's only one of him. Now, if there were a hundred of Nehemiahs, I bet a lot of work could get done, but there's only one. This job is too great for him to do by himself. Yeah, he can have a plan, he can walk around the walls, and he can be deliberate, he can be organized, he can have everything laid out in detail, but unless he can convince others to get on board, he'll be driving this train alone. It would, it would just be him. Nehemiah knows the key to the success of this project is his ability to convince the people, to sell them on this plan, that he's the right guy and he has the right plan. And that's why he has to deliberately deliver this impactful message in verses 17 and 18. He cannot afford to miss this opportunity. So he takes off his surveyor hat and he puts on his motivator hat and he kind of does one of these and he says, okay, here we go. I've got to pitch this plan. And what I want to focus tonight on the message that he gives because he brings out some elements um, that to motivate God's people to the work to get involved and it's important. It's significant. So much is at stake. And I appreciate what he brings out and we'll talk about those elements, and then we'll look at the final, the final one key element that if it's missing, none of it gets done. He presents four ideas. The first idea that he mentions is there's a need. There's a need. See, Jerusalem's in terrible shape. Look at verse 17. He says, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. He starts with, Ye see the distress. See, Nehemiah doesn't have to convince them of the need with just his words alone. What he says is, look around. Just stop and stop your, what you're doing right now. And I just want you to see the distress. Look around at the city. Look around and see the need. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. The city just lies unprotected. God's house has no protection. If you want to get involved, folks, if you want to get involved in God's work, Get your head up and simply look around. Look around. It doesn't take more than a glance, even in our neighborhood, in our city, to look around and realize that things are not good. Take a look around, young people, at your school. Get your head up and look around and see the distress. Look around in your neighborhood. Look around in your workplace. Look around and it doesn't take long to notice the distressing results of sin. Nehemiah said, see the distress. And that means evil. It means trouble. It means adversity. And just like Nehemiah, 
the cities around us lie in waste. They do. And unfortunately, many of God's people, they're not looking around. They don't see it. Some don't see it because they're, they're kind of focused on their own lives. And, and I understand. I mean, life gets busy. We've got a lot going on. And you, if you're like me, you've got something just about every day that's taking your attention. And most evenings, you've got something to do. And you've got to take care of this bill and run this errand and take this child over here. And you've got all kinds of things that are clamoring for your attention. But that sometimes that causes us not to stop and look around. And we forget just how much in distress Sioux Falls, South Dakota is in. We forget to look around and see that there are people all around us that, that weren't in church this morning anywhere. They're not in church tonight anywhere. They may not have been in church anywhere all year long. Probably they aren't saved and somebody's got to tell them. But if we're not looking around, who's going to? We got busy lives, I get it, but others don't see it because they've gotten used to, this, to the distress. You know, we're kind of like frogs in the kettle, and you, you've heard that illustration before, how if you heat the water up, the frog doesn't even notice it. And sometimes I think that we don't notice, and we don't even realize how quickly things are changing. We don't realize how quickly the distress is progressing around us. I mean, if, if you turn on the television... It doesn't take long to realize, I mean, things that are on television today that I would have never dreamed of 20 years ago would be on television. And now it's just normal. You can't even watch a commercial these days without seeing uh, the homosexual agenda thrown out there. Just look around and see the distress that our culture is in. And sometimes we, I think, we're looking around, maybe we see it, but it's, so, it's changed so much and we've just gotten used to it, we don't even notice. If God's work is going to be accomplished, God's people are going, going to have to see the distress and just how bad it is. Jerusalem was in bad shape and all they had to do was look around. The walls needed to be rebuilt so Jerusalem could be protected and be repaired. But there was another need and Nehemiah addresses it at the end of verse 17. Uh, he says, again, in verse 17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. And here's the phrase I want to see, that we be no more a reproach. You see, the fact that the walls were broken down was not just a physical problem. Yes, it's a physical problem in that they don't have protection, but it's not just a practical need. He's not just saying, okay, listen, you know, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look very good. We've got to rebuild the walls. It doesn't look good. We want to make sure it looks good and that we reflect God. And that, I, I agree with that. In God's house, God's house ought to reflect the God that it represents. And it ought to look good. And we ought to do those things. But there's more than just a practical need. There's a symbolic need. You see, when Nehemiah said, we are a reproach, he wasn't only talking about the people. He was referring to the testimony of God. He was saying, God's name is being reproached. Reproach means a condition of shame or disgrace, and it also means maybe being scorned or taunted. So it's not just that the city and God's people and the work need the walls so they could be protected. No, God's name has been affected by their sin. 
And when people look at those walls, those walls symbolize the power and glory and protection of God. To have them knocked down was like saying, God has been knocked down. His name is being reproached. Nehemiah is essentially saying, if there's no other reason to get involved in God's work, do it for the glory of God. Do it for His name. His name is being reproached. And folks, there's a need, and if you're wondering why you should give yourself to the work, it's not about us, it's about God. When when we realize that what we're doing is not just for the pastor, it's not just for the church name, it's not even for your name, it's for God's name. It starts to change what we do and how we do it because we realize that God's work is not about us, it's about God. And there's no greater reason to jump in to God's work than the fact that it's about God. If Nehemiah had come to these people, these rulers, he's the new guy in town, he comes in, he strolls in like the Lone Ranger with his mask on and says, hey, fellas, follow me. Do you think that if he had just said that, they would have just been on board? I mean, I don't think so. No, but he comes in and he says, and he says something like this, it's not about me, this is about God's name, and his name is being reproached, there's a need, let's build. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. This is about God's name. And how we approach God's work affects God's name. Nehemiah gives this first reason and says there's a need. Then he gives a second reason. And and it might seem contrary to what I just stated. But it really goes along right along with it. There's a need. But second, there's a leader. There's a need. It's very clear. The walls are broken down. Look around. The gates are burned. God's name is being reproached. There's a need. But second, there's a leader. Look at verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. It's also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. See, as much as they needed to be driven to do the work for God's name, Nehemiah is still careful to explain why he's the right man to lead the work. He says, God's good hand has clearly led me to do this. Here are all the ways. Here, but pay attention. He's saying, here are all the ways that God has clearly led me to do this. Here are all the ways that God has proven that he's with me in this endeavor. Now, Nehemiah is not trying to prop himself up. He's just trying to convince the people that God was behind this. God is behind me being here. The king got behind it, even though I was sad in his presence. I can imagine the story, how he tells it. You know, you wouldn't believe it. I was sad in the king's presence. I've seen men killed for less than that. And yet, I was sad in his presence. And the king said, what's troubling you? And I told him, and he actually was okay with it. He said, I'll help you. So I submitted to his authority. He gave me letters to pass through all the countries between here and the palace. Not only that, so this is again what Nehemiah is telling them. Not only that, he said he gave me all the materials to rebuild. I mean, he gave me all the timber. He gave me all the lumber. I have it all with me. He even, folks, listen, even sent an army to protect me for that 1,500-mile journey to make sure that I got here. God's good hand has been on me. And I don't have to spend much time on this point because I think Nehemiah makes a very very good case. It's open and shut. But listening to that argument makes it clear God has orchestrated Nehemiah being there. God's the one that made this happen. And these can sometimes feel strange or maybe strange points to bring up when you're in the position that I'm in, but it's in the text, so I'm going to deal with it as quickly as I can. God has, in his sovereignty, orchestrated a leader for Eastside Baptist Church. 
And I'm not standing up here and saying, follow me because of look at my credentials. That would be foolish of me. That's not what I'm saying at all tonight. But I can stand up here and I can say like Nehemiah, God put this together. I mean, God brought me here. God worked in my family to come here. God in his sovereignty put this together. And it's not about me. And it's not about my past credentials. And it's not about my leadership. And it's not about what I can do. It's about the fact that for some reason in God's big, strange, sometimes plan, he put all of this together and he had me be the one. And in the end, I just have to say this, it's not about the leader. It's about the God that has orchestrated our lives to put us in the positions we are in. And just as much as God has led Nehemiah to be standing there in that moment, he had orchestrated and worked in the lives of every person listening to Nehemiah in that very moment. And I have to say that the parallels are, are similar here, that we're all here, and you're listening to this message tonight, we're all here because of God's good hand upon us. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, says, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if that's the case, then it's time for us to, to say, God, in his sovereignty, place me right here where I'm at, and it's time, if he knew that I was going to be the one right here, right now, in this place, then I need to get on board and get all in because God's the one that put us all here. One more point about leadership. There's more than one leader in this room. Now, I'm not saying that every one of us have the same position at Eastside Baptist Church. That would be a mess. But I see a room full of potential leaders and leaders already. It's just that some of us don't see ourselves like the way God sees us sometimes. And like when, when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and called him, thou, thou, he said, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon's kind of shaking, hiding, shaking. And, and, God, and the angel says, thou mighty man of valor. And everyone else would be saying, who are you talking to? Gideon was saying, who are you talking to? I'm not a mighty man of valor. No, listen, God in this room right here, and we don't all have the position of pastor, but every one of us has the potential to be a leader at Eastside Baptist Church. It just depends on if you will accept the role that God wants you to play. Amen. I'm not saying that everybody will have a position in front, but you, you can lead. And even if it's just in your, the level of faithfulness in which you serve, you can lead by example. How clean you clean the bathrooms, you can lead by example. You just need to see yourself like God might see you. And say, listen, he can turn, if he can turn Gideon into a leader and an example, then he can use me. And I'm just saying, embrace the role. Get excited about what God might want you to do. There's an obvious need. There's a clear leader. And the third is intertwined with what Nehemiah has already said. There are resources. There's a need, there's a leader, and there are resources. A big part of Nehemiah's case is the fact that he has the resources to do the job. I mean, he didn't come in with his pockets out saying, you know, I don't really have anything in my pockets and, you know, I can't really do anything about it, but I sure do have a strong feeling these walls need to be, be, need to be picked up. 
No. He came in and said, listen, I have the king's backing. I have all the letters. I have all the timber and all the lumber. You saw the army that escorted me here. Listen, there are resources. God is behind it. He's proved he's behind it because look at all that he has given us to use to build the walls. I mean, he said, I, I, I can do this work without fear. The king's backing me. We have all the material. I have all the resources. You have to have resources in order to, to accomplish God's work. I mean, it doesn't hurt to have a building as beautiful as this. I mean, you look around. It's extremely helpful to have financial help to do the work of the ministry. And I'm thankful for the good, faithful giving of the members of Eastside Baptist Church. I'm telling you, it's a huge blessing. But what I appreciate about Nehemiah is this. He doesn't view the physical materials as his most important resource. Yeah, he has resources. Yes, there are resources and they're here. But Nehemiah's greatest resource is his faith in God. Look at verse 20. It says, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. I mean, what an amazing thing to say. You know, the enemies were laughing, they're scorning. And Nehemiah just says, no, listen, yeah, we have the materials. I have all the letters. I mean, all this has come together. But listen, our greatest resource is not a tree and lumber and materials. Our greatest resource is that we have the good hand of our God upon us, and he's going to prosper us. So say what you want to say, but God's on our side. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ promised that about the local church. You know, the most important resource we have is not this building. It's not money in the bank. It's not the fact that things are organized or things are moving well. Our greatest asset is faith in a God who can do the impossible things. And if we ever get to the point where we trust in the material over the spiritual, we may as well close the doors. Because at that point, we're not much more than a social club. We must operate by faith first for God, depending on God and trusting God. There's a need. There's a leader. There are resources. And most importantly, our resource is God. And you see all these things come together. All these things have to come together to accomplish God's work. And you think, well, everything's here. That's all we need. Okay, here we go. Just mix it all up in a pot and it kind of comes out and it's God's work. Well, that's not exactly how it works. See, in order for Nehemiah to motivate the people to do the work of God, he's clearly laid out the elements required. And to this point, each element is certain. I mean, he's coming at it and saying, okay, listen, there is a need, period. Or exclamation point, if you're one of those kind of textures, you know. Everything has an exclamation I tell my wife, don't just stop with the exclamation points. Okay, there is a need, period. There is a leader, period. There are resources, period. But if each of those certain declarative statements end with a period, the fourth element that Nehemiah gets into ends with a question mark. Because you can have a need, and you can have a leader, and you can have resources all you want, but if you don't have laborers, it doesn't matter. See, point number four, there's a need, there's a leader, there are resources, but point four is... It's not there is, it starts with are there. Point four is are there laborers? Question mark. See, Nehemiah said back in verse 17, come let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. And as certain and as confident as he was in everything else, 
His wording here acknowledges the condition of laborers who are willing to get on board. He says, come. I invite you. He doesn't come in and say, you, you're going to help me. That's, that's not good leadership. That's not wise leadership. He doesn't come in and say, you, you're going to help me, and I don't care what you say, you're on board. No, he comes in with an invitation. He says, come. I invite you. Everything is in place. It's all ready. The need is there. The leader's right here. Look at all the resources that I have. But it all depends on whether or not God's people will catch a glimpse of how important this really is. This one element makes or breaks the entire process because if the people are not all in, it's all over. The work of God needs cooperation among a group of committed followers. Well, why do we need laborers? Well, the job's too big for one person. I mean, there are two or three miles maybe of of walls, uh, a dozen, 15, 18, 20 feet tall. We don't know for sure. Two or three miles of these walls are broken down and in disrepair. One guy couldn't do that probably in a lifetime. This task is not meant to rest on two shoulders. He needs help. That's why we need laborers. That's what he's saying. He's we need, why do we need laborers? Well, God's work doesn't require a multitude, but it does take a few. I mean, ask Gideon and those 300 in the book of Judges who defeated over 100,000 Midianites. I mean, God could have just done it with Gideon, or God could have just done it by himself. But it's, the Bible says, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Which means that, yes, God is doing his part, and God's doing most of it. But in the end, he wanted Gideon and those 300 to be involved too. God didn't just say, okay, y'all just sit back. I will take care of this. No, he said, I want to use my servants, my laborers to get the job done. Why do we need laborers? Well, God has a desire to include his people in the work. That's what I just said. He doesn't have to, but he wants to use you. I mean, if only just a few. I mean, a dozen apostles turn the world upside down. We've heard the gospel because of their willingness to get involved. I mean, there is a need for laborers. Nehemiah knows this work was too big for him. If just a few would get involved, then God could do something through them. But the work takes laborers, folks. And Jesus Christ said in Matthew 9, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. I mean, do you realize the key element in holding back the, word of, the work of God is this question, not is there a need? It's not is there a leader? It's not are there resources? No, the question has always been, will there be laborers? That's the question Jesus Christ asked. Well, well yeah, but what about the need? There's always going to be a need. The harvest is truly as plenteous. What about a leader? Well, a leader can hinder the work, but that's not what Jesus Christ was asking about there in Matthew 9. He's asking about the laborers. What about the resources? Well, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, there are, he is our greatest resource, and he, there will always be resources if there's a group of people committed to the cause. The one question that must always be answered every time is their labor. Are there, will, are there people willing to get on board? Are there disciples willing to give up a Saturday to go make bus visits week after week after week? Are there teachers willing to give a few hours to prepare a lesson every week? 
Are there workers willing to sign up uh, to hand out flyers or for a friend day? If we do a blitz for Easter, will we have enough to fill up the sheet? Are there men willing to get together and pray on an off day during the week? Are there people willing to be in their place every service? Are there members willing to be greeters so that when people walk in, they feel welcome? Are there men willing to be involved in snow removal so people can get into the building over the winter? Are there teenagers willing to greet that lonely young person sitting by themselves? That's labor. It takes somebody willing to get involved. Are there more willing to give up an hour on Sunday afternoon to sing in the choir? Is there anyone willing to serve whether they get credit or not? Are there some adults willing to step up and get involved as a Sunday school teacher or a Sunday school helper or get into the junior church rotation, which right now we really need it, but we don't have laborers? You know, it gets to the place where we want something to function and we want a program and we want to meet a need. But listen, very often the question is not, is there a need? There's a need. The question is not, are there resources? There are resources. The question is and always has been, will there be someone willing to labor? Where are they? And I'm thankful I look around the room and I I can think of ways in which every person in this room is laboring and serving. And I'm grateful, but I'm thinking, well, we, we still have needs. And at some point we have to decide, I mean, if either a need goes unmet or we're just going to have to recruit more laborers. And that's probably where we're at. We need some people that see the need enough, have a heart for it, that they're willing to say, if there's a need for laborers, I'll be one. Where are those mature, established Christians that are willing to take somebody new under their wing? Some young Christian or some new member, take them through discipleship weekly. Show them what it's like. Uh, you men, show a young man what it's like to lead a family. You moms, show a young mother what it's like uh, to keep a home and and, and to, to do what she can to take care of her family. Uh, where are the young people willing to take another young person through the discipleship program and, and to take them, just we, meet with them weekly just to be a friend and just listen to their needs and pray with them? I mean, where are the laborers? We've got a lot of good mature Christians in here who could reach out. And I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, somebody could really take, again, I don't mean to embarrass him, but Ian, this, this is a good kid right here. He got saved today. Who's going to teach Ian how to be a good Christian? Who's going to show him what it's like uh, to give your life to God? And you don't have to serve on staff and get paid to do it, but you can be faithful every week and you can be a great example of what it is to be a disciple, even if you don't get paid by the church. Who's going to, who's going to take him under this wing? Uh, we've got other young families in here that have recently joined. Uh, who's going to help them to know how to take care of their finances? Who's just going to take them under their wing and have them over for supper and, and just, just treat them like they're their own family? Where are the laborers? See, it doesn't always look like a position in church. 
Very often it's just you having a heart for other people and however that looks, we need laborers. We need some more on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights to grab a stack of tracks and go and invite people that you come across to come to church. If you have a heart for their souls, where are the laborers? There's always going to be a need. Here at Eastside, we have resources, and I look around, there are a lot of leaders. But the question of the hour is, and always has been, will there be enough to labor? That's what Jesus Christ was saying, the harvest is plenteous. It's the laborers that are few. In Nehemiah's story, he made such a strong, deliberate case that the people responded to Nehemiah's come with, let us rise up and build. They were ready to get on board because they bought in. Eastside Baptist Church, the need is great. There are leaders, there are resources, but one is too small a number to achieve greatness. If nothing of real value can be done alone, will you help advance the work by getting involved? Or are you going to sit back while others do the work? If you're willing, I pray tonight that you'll be one of those responding to the call with this phrase. Let us rise up and build. We have the resources, we have a need, we have leaders, we have an opportunity. I want to be involved. Will there be laborers? Well, only you can answer that. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.